0: Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode will cover Before Midnight, the third film in the Before trilogy by Richard Linklater, Ethan Hawke, and Julie Delphi. This is also part of a larger series I'm doing throughout this year on Ethan Hawke and reviewing different films of his, leading up to his 50th birthday in November. As always, I encourage you to offer any feedback you have on this episode, my coverage of it, Ethan Hawke, and Richard Linklater in general. I'm going to be sharing a piece of feedback that I got earlier at the end of this episode, so you can already hear some listeners' thoughts on that. My work on uh, other platforms has been kind of slow in the past few weeks. The only thing I have to share is a new patron episode. This is covering the FBI story, a film from the 50s that was actually uh, encouraged by and has a cameo from uh, J. Edgar Hoover, so sort of official FBI propaganda, and I relate it to Twin Peaks, the character of Cooper If you've seen the show, you know he's the FBI agent who goes to to a small town to investigate a murder. And besides just the really obvious surface connections, there's a lot more interesting threads throughout, including some to the more domestic setting of the Twin Peaks film, Firewalk With Me. Now, if you're not familiar with Twin Peaks, you're just listening for the uh, Before Midnight coverage. Uh, Pardon me for a second, as I tell you my... Other Twin Peaks coverage on that episode won't mean much to you, but if you are a Twin Peaks fan, may pique your interest. I also talk about the topics of uh, Louie and Jonathan, characters from the show, the locations of the Double R and Hap's Diner, and I relate the pregnancy involving a character named Lucy's uh, Pregnancy uh, with part four of the Showtime series that followed up later for Twin Peaks. So that's my Twin Peaks coverage. I also offered a quick tribute to the podcaster Michael Brooks, and shared some of my old archive pieces on Fire in the Sky and Double Life of Veronique, two films that I had also compared to Twin Peaks in the past. So that's what's going on there. For now, let's dive into Before Midnight. And how did you two meet? We met about 18 years ago. We kind of sort of fell in love. And a decade later, we ran into each other. No, no, no. You wrote a book, and I read about it and went to look for it. Oh, that's pretty romantic. If we're meeting for the first time today on a train, would you start talking to me? Would you ask me to get off the train with you? Of course. Oh, this place is so full of thousands of years of myth and tragedy, and I thought something tragic was going to happen. It's still there. It's still there. Gone. The first of our films in focus is Before Midnight, the third part of the Before trilogy. It began with Before Sunrise in 1995, and I think it takes place in 94. I think each film takes place the year before it's released. Before Sunset followed in 2004. And then Before Midnight followed in, I think, 2013. So in each case, they had a nine-year gap. And that's appropriate. It allows the characters to be seen in their 20s, then in their 30s, and now in their 40s. So You're really seeing them change over time. And this is obviously a theme that fascinates Linklater a lot. I mean, he made Boyhood over pretty much over the period between... But Before sunset, or a little before before sunset, and a little bit after before midnight. So during this whole period, he was actually documenting Ethan Hawke, among other characters, other actors, aging in the years between these films. And for me, it's always interesting because I'm 10 years behind these characters, about maybe 15 years behind these characters. So, like, when Before Sunrise came out, I was just a little kid, not even really a teenager yet. Before uh, Sunset came out, I was the age of the characters in Before Sunrise. I was in my early 20s. And then for Before Midnight, now... Uh, well, at that time, I guess I was a little... Watching it now, I'm closer to the character's age in uh, the second film in Before Sunset. Maybe actually a little, a little older at this point, but not quite to Before Midnight age yet. So now we're seeing them in middle age. And this film, I think I predicted... When I was covering before sunset, that this that this would probably take place in like a third touristy European location because the first one takes place in Vienna and the second one takes place in Paris, and sure enough, this is on a Greek island, and we learn that uh, that Jesse and Celine live in Europe now. He divorced his wife that we learned about in the second film. He has trouble seeing his son. Uh, there's a lot of marital tension or ex-marital tension that leads to present marital tension with his current wife. And he did indeed... Actually, no, I take that back. He did not marry Celine. They, they live together as... I don't know if they're officially common-law yet, but they've been together for a decade, and they have twin daughters. So they have a family... And uh, he basically got everything he could have hoped for in the first film. And, of course, things are never quite that easy. So the first film is kind of dominated by this young, budding love between two strangers. The second film is structured around this idea of people still young but with a lot of wisdom under their belt, a lot of life experience, coming together again and kind of regretting what could have been and what wasn't and hoping for the future. And now before midnight, we're getting something much more settled, much more established, this couple that, you know, the the spark, the dream of what could be is gone because they made something actually happen. So that's what they're living with now. And he's a novelist who, as we learned in the second film, has written about their life uh, or about their experience at that time, their their little fling and how... He, You know, he he leaves it on an ambiguous note, just like the movie itself ended. And now we learn that he's written many books since then that are often about their marriage, so people feel like they know her through his book, and she kind of resents that. And We see uh, building tension throughout this based on that, but also based on him uh, kind of wanting to... He wants to be more of a father for his son and perhaps move back to the U.S., and she just is not thrilled with that. I mean, she has a job with... Uh, the government, I believe they have a home in in Greece, but they're still living in France, I believe. So I think she's working for the French government. Sorry, it's been a little while since I've watched this. I'm recording this after the fact, so a few of the details are foggy, but the overall impression uh, remains pretty strong because this was a very much a meritable spat movie, which is like a genre. You know, Bergman was the king, bar none, of this genre, and sometimes it, it's a it's a you could also call it the the Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf genre, although I think in this we see they're a little more loving than that. This isn't just a bitter marriage that's dissolved into mutual acrimony, uh, but it does things do get pretty uh, hostile at a certain point. I also found this interesting to watch because uh, I've always been more sympathetic to Celine than Jesse in the previous films. I found him kind of obnoxious uh i think i expressed that in the before sunrise review in particular it just has a certain persona that i find grating uh and in this film i think i maybe because life has sort of beaten him down a little bit i mean he's got a lot of success he's still kind of arrogant but you know he's he's a more a little more mature than he was um relatively speaking and so I found him a little more sympathetic, and actually, I found myself more sympathetic to him in the big argument scenes, uh, which was an interesting film. And I think Linklater, definitely to me, and maybe it's just a function of how the film is made, I thought he he seemed much more sympathetic to, um, like much more identifying with Jesse than Celine in the argument. That was just the sense. That was the impression I had from the way that the drama unfolds. And uh, it's an interesting choice. I think it, it th- to me, the films have always felt like Jesse is the main character, even though it's about both of them. It's always kind of told through Jesse's eyes. Certainly before sunset, this is the most clear because, um, well, no, I take that back a little. I was going to say because we're, uh, you know, we only find out about her life through his eyes. But then again, we only find out about, her life through or his life through her eyes and ears um because we don't really know anything about him going into the movie nonetheless the way it starts with him everything i i think Jesse is always kind of leading the way for better or worse this film was the only before film i hadn't seen before so i was really anticipating this and wondering what it would be and uh, that feels appropriate in a way for this podcast because this is the future. And once you've seen, if each film kind of represents a different phase, like before sunrise almost already feels like it belongs to the past in a way, maybe just for me because I saw it so many years after it came out. Before sunset feels like more of a present tense, what do we do with this past? Where are we looking for the future? And before midnight feels like kind of the outcome of all of it. Um so I was interested to see how that would play out. And I think if I had seen before midnight before I went back and watched these films and reviewed and talked about them, uh, it just, it would have been a different picture. There would have been a little less excitement in a way because watching those two films, knowing that there was a part I hadn't seen yet, added like an extra sort of level of intrigue to it. And there could still be chapters we haven't seen because I think he'd like to probably continue this. I mean, it's very neat and nice that you have a trilogy now and it seems like even in this day and age with a bajillion Marvel movies and every franchise has to have like seven entries before it peters out nonetheless there's still something about a film trilogy that feels right so maybe this will be the last one and we have gone through sort of three phases of growth i mean they've still got plenty of years they've got their 50s 60s they got their old age And they talk about in each film they're always talking about and projecting themselves into the future and where will they be and what will they think about the things that are happening now and uh in before midnight you still get that. They're talking about when she's 90. I think he says at one point he's a time traveler. Uh, he's coming to visit her after they've almost broken up. He comes out to visit her at the in the cafe where the, the film ends and says he's a time traveler. He wants her to know things are going to work out. It's a sort of a cute gesture that, that I think pays off nicely. Because you're wondering, how can this film end after all of that? Like after, after the intensity, I mean, we spend a good... I'm going to say probably uh, 30 to 40 minutes in their hotel room, starting off very romantic. The first real sex scene that we get in any before film because we kind of cut away in the first film and then the second film we, it ends just as it seems like something's about to happen. In this film, we actually have a little bit of lovemaking and then the phone rings and that just derails the whole, the whole thing. But we also get to see them spend some time in like a villa earlier in the film where they're sharing that they're philosophizing a lot with this other group, and this is a first for the Before films too, because other than a brief reading group that, uh, that that Jesse is speaking to in the beginning of Before Sunset, and a few characters, individual characters they encounter along the way in Before Sunrise, this has always been a two-hander. And the second half of Before Midnight is totally a two-hander. There's nobody else in the room. It's just these two going at each other. So it's interesting to see them interact with a wider group of people. There's like a young teenage couple, an older man. And this is a great place to locate it in Greece, this fountain of civilization and knowledge and philosophy and everything like that. This is this is the perfect place to situate them. And there's a nice, I don't know, there's a nice feeling to it. You know, I've talked about how the film's kind of echo the historical moment in a way that uh, 2000 in 1995 you had this weird end of history vibe where it was like we are all wandering around post-cold war europe and uh, the, the, everything all the big events are in the past although they reference sarajevo and bosnia at one point what's going on there so there is that sense of something happening off screen then the before sunset they talk about the well they obliquely reference the iraq war and uh, environmentalism and everything that's that there's that kind of hotbox tension of like the early mid two thousands where just it felt like something intense was happening, but it was kind of uh most people unless they were like serving overseas or happened to be at the site of a terrorist attack, they weren't like directly involved with it and there was this weird tension to that situation. And then uh in in twenty thirteen when this came this film came out, like Greek had just been through a period of austerity and unrest. Um Europe was Going through all these tensions that are now coming out through Brexit and all these right wing governments being elected there. She's part of a government that's trying to make something work. And I, you know, I do think actually, I'm going to pause this for a moment and refresh my thoughts on whether she lives in Greece or France, because I think that is kind of important. Okay, it is the French government, which still feels relevant. I think around 2013, I believe Sarkozy was already out of office, and I think there was a socialist elected government that went ahead. And uh, basically endorsed a neoliberal turn, which basically led to the dissolution of the party in the past few years, which is how Macron got elected. So there's a lot going on there, and uh, it seems like each film, while focused on these little relation, these these you know two people in this relationship, does uh, it does kind of feed off of what's happening in the in the broader world at that time. They're snapshots of individual moments against this larger tapestry, which I like a lot. And, of course, we'll see that a lot with Boyhood, which I'll talk about uh, soon. But before I get to that as well, I wanted to observe the interesting contrast, in a way, between Ethan Hawke, because, you know, this is ostensibly part of an Ethan Hawke series. Ethan Hawke in this film and in Boyhood, he's sort of more brash and assertive in Boyhood. And uh, watching Boy Before Midnight again... Or well, for the first time, but after watching Boyhood again, or around the same time as watching it again, and watching all these other Ethan Hawke films, I noticed how he's just more, he, he comes off as like a little more depressed and subdued as Jesse. Like He's very cocky in the earlier films, but he's kind of got this wistful, uh, maybe a little self-pitying side that I don't see as much in the Boyhood character or other Ethan Hawke performances. Hawke is interesting in the sense that he has a definite persona, but there's so many variations on that, and and maybe he has several different personas. I mean, put something like Reality Bites up against uh, First First Reformed. You can see a thread between them. He has a certain there's a certain like maybe I don't know if arrogance is the right word, but like a, a sureness of himself that's in that's present in a lot of his performances. Although I do think he has a mode as well, like Dead Poet Society, uh, where he's more a facing, uh he can play shy too you know maybe great expectations to a certain extent and, and everything but the first scene of before midnight i just noticed right away he's with his son and he's saying goodbye to him maybe that's why the comparison to boyhood came to mind because he has a you know a 10 year old son in this film like in that film and uh he just he seems a little a little sad like he's droopy in a way almost uh, you know, as as he says goodbye to the sun and gets in the car, there's like a sadness to it, and we feel like life has worn him down a little bit, uh, even though he's got so many things going for him. He's got the wife he always wanted. He's apparently a successful novelist, but you know, it's just interesting to note those small variations within a persona or a, a performer that that can just go in completely different directions. I think, and uh, Celine, Julie Delphi in this. She gets to do sort of an interesting variation on her her previous characters. She's always, and this is another reason I think that uh, Jesse really is the protagonist for for Linklater in these films. He always seems to wear what he's doing, what his motivations are, and what he wants, his desires, more on his sleeve, where she is a little more cagey. In the first film, she comes off as sort of very sweet and... and, uh, and accommodating, but also a little bit aloof. And then in the second film, she starts off similarly, and we see her breakdown as it goes along, and finally express some of the frustrations frustrations that she's held back and kept for herself. Not wanting to, not wanting, you know, her uncertainty comes out—the fact that she is not confident that Jesse will like her or will is being straightforward with her or anything like that. And then finally in this film, having been married to song, she's much more confident in asserting herself, but also still kind of withholding how she feels about certain things and letting them build up and then releasing them. So this film, partly because I watched it a while ago, so I'm just kind of, remembering things as i go and and might have forgotten some interesting details about it but also just because a lot of people had already seen this they'd expressed a lot of excitement and i would say honestly when people mention, they say, I'm, I'm here for Twin Peaks, but I like some of the film stuff too. This, the Before series, I think three or four different times, different people have said, this has been the thing they cite as like, this is what they're interested in. So I'd love to get a broader conversation going on these films and cover them in listener feedback. Now that I've seen all three, you can, you can spoil them for me. What did you think of this film? I've heard a lot of people say it's their favorite of the bunch. Um, I don't know if I would say that. I thought it was, you can make an argument, it might be the strongest of them dramatically and everything um before sunrise probably still my personal favorite but uh this was definitely a more mature film in a lot of ways and i'm just curious to see what you think of these and what your you know collective the general you i'd love to get a lot of pieces of feedback on this Where does this slot in for you in the the trilogy, and how did it change how you view those other films when you go back and watch them now? Because I haven't watched the first two films after seeing this, and that'll be a whole new experience as well. This review was originally released for patrons back in 2019, and at the time I received feedback from one of my listeners who had actually recommended this trilogy as something to cover. I received feedback from David... He said, I'm just catching up with your work and wanted to say I really enjoyed the Before Sunset comments. I'm excited for you to watch Before Midnight. This was right before I put it up. I might need to watch all of them again. And then they added, uh, as far as Before Midnight goes, uh, thanks for the Before Midnight review. I didn't want to hype it up, but that's my favorite one. Seeing them contend with the trade-offs and pain of their matured relationship was more gripping to me than the, if only, romanticism of the previous two movies. That's it for this episode. If you enjoyed this, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes. By far the best way to get my work promoted so other people will see it uh, through that platform, not just come from already knowing my work elsewhere. And if you really like the work, please consider becoming a patron. For a dollar a month, you can get big, huge bonus episodes every month where I talk about Twin Peaks cinema and uh, other Twin Peaks topics as well as film topics and share listener feedback in depth. Uh, some of these episodes are hours and hours long, so there's just a lot of content to dig into. And of course, you also get instant access to my entire archive, which at this point, I uh, believe is hundreds of hours of material uh, that you can dive into there. This is just the tip of the iceberg, as I always say on this pod, on this public podcast here. Here's a little preview of what's coming up next time. This is going to be in two weeks I'm going to sort of kick off a bit of a spin-off project that for now is still going to be part of this official podcast feed but eventually will branch off into its own. It's called Left of the Movies, left-wing political films, uh, sometimes right-wing ones but covered from a left-wing point of view that's my own. And uh this film is Medium Cool, which is about the Democratic Convention in 1968. Uh, seemed appropriate timing given this month's uh, Democratic convention, under I would say pretty similarly contentious circumstances. Although I think I, I don't think there's any big protest planned, and the event itself is going to be kind of remote and virtual. So make an interesting juxtaposition there. This is a film that was actually shot at the convention in '68. The director knew that there was going to be. Some stuff going down and there sure was so here's a little preview of that how does it feel to stop feeling you may discover violence at a time when an entire country learns to feel nothing america's wonderful 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 wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. it really makes it paramount pictures presents medium cool